Hey, this is Maureen. Just as tonight's episode was winding its way through the cyber pipeline to your device, some developments happened in the Anthony Sanborn case that we talk about tonight. So listen to tonight's episode. I think you'll find it really interesting. But also keep an eye out for a mini-episode that'll drop in the next couple days with some updates and some other cool stuff. And thanks for listening. This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. And we're the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is episode 22. 22. And today, we, this was a really busy week for both of us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so, so we're doing a little bit more freeform. freeform. Yeah. Well, that ta- I do have the background. We did freeform on our Jean Bonnet episode well, six. And that was, was a pretty yeah. popular episode. Yeah. So yeah, I think we kind of end up going it's the free. second most popular after the Yoga Twins. I know we we kind of end up going free form. Well, yeah, it's not like we stick to a really strict script, but we believe it or not, we do write a script. We try to stick. Yeah, to we it. do. Yeah, but for well, not for our recommendations, but for for our, right our recommendations, we usually just do. Totally we have wanna... any uh, updates on anything? I'm trying to think. I can't think of any. I can't think of anything either. Okay. Mm, okay, I guess we I don't. I thought there was something, but I can't think but of it. But tonight's story is one that's homegrown. Yeah, and we it's, just we were going to do it later, but we decided... It yeah, was, last week we discussed it a little bit and thought and said, oh, we should do, a, we should do so an episode. At some point, and then we thought then we, we said, might as well do it now. It's in the news, and it's it's a very interesting it's case. It's very many. It, it's going to bring up a lot of many things. Portland, um, Portland, the, the the kids, the youth center, Allen's Coffee, Brandy, yeah, um, all sorts of people working at DeMillo's, all sorts of main things. Yeah, but the story it's been in the news this week is Anthony. And it, it was a historic ruling or a historic. It was. Yeah. And I'm sorry. A, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's all right. Anthony Sanborn was convicted in 1992 of killing Jessica Briggs. And last week, he was let out on bail while his conviction is looked at. And I'm not sure what the real legal term for that is. But it's the first time that's happened in Maine. And as we all know, prosecutors, once they put somebody in jail, they don't want to say that the guy should be let out. Why don't I just get to the story, then we'll talk about it. Okay. On May 24th, 1989, Jessica Briggs, 16, was brutally murdered on one of Portland, Maine's piers. I think it was the Maine State Pier. The Maine State Pier. Her shoes, an earring, a pack of cigarettes, and a pool of blood were discovered on the pier by employees of Bath Iron Works. A lone earring. A lone earring were discovered. It's Boy, if that were the sign of a crime, I I have so many, like, single earrings. I know, me too. Bath Iron Works had a dry dock. There at the time, and some Bath Iron Works employees found that in the morning, and they said, ooh, looks like something bad might have happened here. They called the cops, and her body was found in the water. Under the dock. Under the dock. There were no happy faces. There were no happy faces. It was later that day they found her body. It's believed that she'd been lying on the dock when her throat was cut, 
Mm. Um, it severed her windpipe and her carotid artery. Carotid. She had multiple other stab wounds to her neck and her torso, mm. including one that penetrated her right lung and would have been fatal if her carotid artery hadn't been cut. Her lower abdomen was sliced from one side to the other, leaving her disemboweled. Ugh. And partially Sorry. eviscerated. Aww. Yeah, poor yeah. Girl. She was 16. At the time, she was AWOL from the nearby Maine Youth Center, and she was one of a roving group of teens. I shouldn't say roving group of teens, it makes them sound like a gang, but she was one of many of Portland street kids. Yeah. The kids weren't necessarily I would call from them Portland. part time street kids. Some, part-time. Of, some of them had homes, but they would spend a lot of time on the streets. Right. She and didn't, She, but she... Right, and they weren't all from Portland. She like, was from Augusta. But one of the reasons the kids, a lot of the kids congregated in Portland, although I will say that a lot congregated in Augusta when we were kids, yeah. is because that's where the main youth center is. At the time, it wasn't fenced in, and kids would just walk away. And Portland is the biggest city in the state, and if you're going to hang out anywhere, that's where you're going to hang yeah. out. Yeah, and they have a soup kitchen, which a lot of smaller towns don't. Yep. Well, they didn't then. They do yeah, yeah, now. They I mean, oh, smaller oh, oh, towns oh, 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 didn't oh, 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 back then. Sorry, now they didn't. See, this know. is what happens when we. Okay. This is on. what happens when you don't let me get through my script. Ah, uh, Ela. Mm, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? English is a second language. Yeah. It was like there were a lot of kids like that back mm-hmm. then. They were in and out of foster homes, in and out of their own homes, in and out of the youth center. They hung out on the streets of Portland. Many, like Jessica, were youth center walkaways. Yes. And, well, it was a state's prison for teens, as I said, it didn't have fences. It did not have fences, but, well, we can talk more about the youth center later. Yes. I used to volunteer there. It was in 1993, so it was several years after this happened, and they did not have fences at the time, but it's up on a hill... Well, they've totally changed where it is now. It's in the same area. It's not in those brick buildings no. there? No, nope. those are offices and condos and other oh. crap. And now it's called Longwood something. Long, no, it's Long Pond. Long, Long Creek. Long Creek, because there is a creek. Huh. There's a creek that goes around it, so it, it, and it actually... Like a, a lo- moat. One, chi- one, one of the kids that ran away once drowned in that oh. creek. It's like a creek that swells sometimes and it's it's and 295 borders it so it's not that easy on that side yeah it's like a natural there were ways to get but it it was hard to one of the articles i read said that a lot of them disappeared and they couldn't find them but when i worked there they caught them all the time it's not like they disappeared like a missing kid they They took took off off. and i don't know how hard they really tried briggs was getting her life together she worked as a waitress at DeMillo's, which is a popular restaurant on the waterfront where a lot of her friends as you'll see also worked and it's a popular tourist spot yeah she had dated Jimmy. Yeah. Yes. She had dated Tony Sanborn. It's not clear, you know, when you have a loose group of kids like that who's dating whom and that type of thing. But the Portland police conducted more than a hundred interviews after her body was found, but they quickly settled on Tony Sanborn. He was also, as I said, a drift away from the main youth center. His parents lived in Portland and sometimes he was at their house and sometimes he wasn't. His dad was pretty sure he was there the night Jessica was murdered. He had gone to bed. He was in a third-floor bedroom that you couldn't get in or out of without going through the rest of the house. As far as his dad knew, Tony hadn't left the house. But police got the dad to say, well, I guess he could have, and I wouldn't have known kind of thing. Despite the lack of any physical evidence linking Sanborn to Briggs' murder and the reliance on shaky and conflicting accounts from a trio of questionable sources 
only one of whom claimed to have actually seen the murder. Sanborn was arrested in the spring of 1990, and it was determined in November of 1990 he'd be tried as an adult, and he was convicted in October of 1992 of Briggs' murder and sentenced to 70 years in the Maine State Prison. A 1994 appeal based on the fact that he should have been tried as a juvenile, as well as the fact that the state failed to give the defense timely information concerning one of the witnesses, Jerry Rossi, who I'll talk about a little later, that was a Brady violation, as we learned from Matt. I wish yeah. I could remember what episode Matt talked about Brady violation. I don't know, but I knew about it, because when I listened to Breakdown, the first season of Breakdown... You knew what it was. Yes. And now we I know what it so is. Proud. But But we know what a Brady violation is, because of Matt, and that's the prosecution not giving all its evidence to the defense. And that was the one thing that was brought up in the 1994 appeal. The judge determined it was a simple oversight that it took eight months for the prosecution to get information about Jerry Rossi, which I'll talk about later to the defense. And the appeal was not upheld. Sanborn had been known to the police. They considered him trouble, although if you look back at his record, and we'll talk about that a little later, he really hadn't done anything real bad. But one of the things he'd done that they didn't like is he was supposed to be, he was supposed to testify before a grand jury in another murder in Portland. And the day he was supposed to testify, he took off on a bus for Virginia Beach, and that pissed them off. It was on their radar very early. They really didn't, by most accounts, look at anybody else. In an article at the time he was convicted, Pam Ames, who was the assistant attorney general in the case, in a newspaper article, said that Hope Katie's testimony was essential in winning a conviction. And we'll talk about her in a few minutes, too. Both the newspaper story and Ames' closing statement at trial said that Katie came forward for the first time in 1992, Mm -hmm. after a year and a half after Sanborn was in jail, and said she had witnessed the murder. She hadn't spoken earlier out of fear, according to Ames, but she had decided to come forward as a 16-year-old to say what she had seen when she was 13. And that was the evidence that Ames pointed to and that the newspaper pointed to that really nailed Sanborn. Katie also claimed a lot of other things, including that she saw Michelle Lincoln, another part of the group of friends, and who's now Sanborn's wife, mm-hmm. punch Briggs before Sanborn stabbed her. And she said she saw two other people there. There were other times she told police that Sanborn was the only person she saw with Briggs. So she couldn't keep her stories. And I, I want to interrupt to say that from what I read, she was not close friends with them. No, she wasn't. She knew who she they were. She kind of knew who they were, but she was She wasn't part of their no. group or friends. Michelle Lincoln, who was 15 at the time, refused to testify in Sanborn's trials, um, taking the fifth. And we really won't know what, why she felt she'd incriminate herself. Although I'll say that if she was... Treated. Of, well, also, she was one of the kids that w- was living on the street. Chances are she committed, she might have committed some crimes. Yeah. And maybe she was afraid if she got on the stand. I'm not really sure, but if you testify for something, you're opening yourself up. Yes, you are. And, and maybe, so maybe someone advised her to do that. And as we'll learn, the police were kind of loose with threatening these kids. So who knows what was said to her. I don't blame her. I would have done the same thing. So Tony Sanborn was in prison the story kind of died out. In 2005, unbeknownst to anyone except for the um, Maine Attorney General's office and the FBI, an inmate in New Jersey 
said that he was talking to the FBI about another case and said he had to get something off his chest and said that he had killed Briggs. The FBI got in touch with the AG's office, found that the guy was confessing to a murder that had actually happened, but they determined that he was just saying it because he wanted to be imprisoned in Maine, back home in Maine rather than in New Jersey. Apparently he was acquainted with this group and nothing more came of the case and no legal team or anyone of Sanborn's was ever told about this confession. Mm -hmm. So at some point, and this is a mystery that none of the newspapers who have covered this or any of the news organizations have covered this. And we've tried to find out. But we, we... if we had tried really hard, we'd find out. Yeah, we'd, if but we, we hadn't decided to do this just a few days ago. And, and maybe we will find out yeah, it, why know. this happened. We, we know the state of Maine, it wasn't their idea. But at some point right. around 2011, the state started looking back into the evidence that had been gathered in Tony Sanborn's case. And we know this, and we'll attach it to our site, the 104-page document the request for bail by Amy Fairfield, the lawyer who was assigned to represent Tony Sanborn in 2016 on this matter. So obviously she was assigned to do it. There was some reason. She was assigned by the state, even though she's a defense. We don't have, in Maine, we do not have public defenders. The state will assign an attorney to, you know, we can always clarify with Matt, when he comes it, back. If we ever see him but, again. <laughs> so they, they must have had a reason to assign, because the state right. pays for it. But we don't know yet. So Amy we'll Fairfield, out. at the beginning of April, filed a 104-page document that we're going to attach to our site, and it's fascinating, about what went wrong in Tony Sanborn's case, and this was the motion that he be given bail and be allowed. And she actually yes. asked, asked for the charges against him to be dismissed. But here's what, here's in a nutshell, and we're going to talk about it more but I just want you guys to all know what the basics are, what Fairfield found out. There was the Brady violation that was mentioned in the 1994 appeal. That was that Jerry Rossi, who police said, told them, and I'm trying to remember what Matt told us about hearsay, but Jerry Rossi told police that Tony Sanborn told him three times that he had killed Briggs. And that isn't hearsay because... Tony told him. Okay, thank you. I'm the one that I was couldn't trying remember. to clarify it with Matt. I couldn't remember. If, I if get somebody else had said, hey, Jerry Rossi told me that Tony told him, then that would have been him. But none of those statements by Jerry Rossi are on tape telling police that Sanborn, Tony Sanborn, told him he had killed Briggs. What is on tape, Jerry Rossi was living in Florida at the time, and the Portland police called the Florida cops, and they went to interview Jerry Rossi. Is Rossi saying a good dozen times in a lot of different ways that, no, he never told me that. Tony Sanborn never told me he killed Jessica Briggs. He didn't tell me that. He never told me that. And the Florida cop brought up, and the Portland police later said he just kind of made this up, that there were three or four rapes the Portland police could tie Jerry Rossi too and he better of young under 14 of young girls, girls and that yeah. but that could all go away if he testifies in this and police say they don't make promises like that but I think they, they imply the that to people and give me a break so that so that is on tape and Jerry Rossi was sent back to Maine and police did have a, and it's a long, complicated thing in the document, but I'll say they do have a photo of him in a sexually naked, in a sexually <laughs> compromising position with a naked, underage girl. She's 13. The girl, he and another buddy got her and a friend of hers drunk on 
the classic main the beverage, the main state beverage, Allen's coffee, brandy. Allen's coffee brandy, and they went uh, they went to a motel in Augusta. Police confronted the girl about it. I'm not sure in what context. She didn't really. She wanted to press charges. They said you have to go to Augusta to do that. They brought her in because they wanted to find out more about the Sanborn connection and stuff. She wanted to go up to Augusta to press charges, but her mom, classic Maine, they didn't have money for gas <laughs> to make the 45 to an hour trip to Augusta, 45 minute to an hour trip to Augusta. So the girl didn't press charges, she remembered, in 2016, but she was 13 or 14 at the time. Jerry Rossi, he was in his late he was 20s. Like late 20s, yes. He was never charged with anything, apparently. So, promises or not, he did end up testifying at Tony Sanborn's trial, and we'll talk about it more later. Well, I just want to say, clarify, he was a roommate. He Tony Sanborn stayed with him sometimes. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Thank you. And he did testify at the trial that Tony Sanborn had told him that he had killed Jessica Briggs, and this was the second thing after Hope Katie, who I'm going to get to in a minute, that was a big point for the prosecution. That whole thing about him telling the Florida guy, the only interview of his that's on tape that he didn't, it wasn't brought up because the defense wasn't told about it till very shortly before the trial and couldn't do a lot on it, and that's what the 1994 appeal was based on. That was the Brady violation. <laughs> All of the interviews with the important people in this case that the prosecution used, their transcripts of their interviews were not made available to the defense or anyone else, but rather one of the detectives in the case, I think it was Detective Daniel Young, yes. There was a James Daniels and a Daniel Young, so it's confusing. Boiled them all down to a quote-unquote narrative form. I think this is a good time to point that out. So you don't get to see what they actually said. You get his perception or his belief of what they said. He had people sign their statements. And like... One of the people was illiterate. He was functionally illiterate. I'm sorry. His name was Glenn Brown. (laughs) Thank you. And his testimony was that he had seen Tony Sanborn the day before, a couple days before Briggs was killed, and he and Briggs were holding hand. They had been on and off again. Oh, so they were on again, and they were so happy, and they were going to go for a walk in the old poor, and blah, blah, blah. Then he saw Sanborn the next day, the day before Briggs was found dead, and Sanborn supposedly showed him a new knife that he had, and all the kids had knives, that's pretty clear. And by the way, this quote-unquote new knife was never found. He had no lots murder of knives, weapon. Though. Right, he and did have lots like of knives. Like you, you said, kids had knives all the time. When I was in high school, kids carried knives all the time. And he supposedly said something to Glenn Brown about that he was looking for Briggs, he was mad at her, and he was going to go do something to her. And there's a lot in in the 104-page document about what kids were around and what weren't. Glenn Brown was kind of confused. He had a lot of testimony that contradicted itself. He later said that that never happened, that he never had that conversation with Sam Borden, and he recanted it. But the police had him sign a statement saying he said that Glenn Brown was illiterate. He did not know how to read. I don't know what they told him was in the statement, but he didn't write it and didn't sign it. There was a guy named David Schwartz who told police that he saw a guy on a bicycle riding along next to Jessica Briggs. And while Tony Sambor did have a bike, he nobody ever had put him on a bike that night. There were some kids on bikes that these other kids had met up with. They got Schwartz to identify that person at some point as Tony Sanborn, although nobody else had said Tony was on a bike or anything. They also told Sanborn 
that they interviewed all sorts of Bath Iron Works workers who identified seeing Sanborn at the site, and that was a total lie. They had never. So it was the kind of thing where police were manipulating these kids. But the biggest evidence, as we said, was Hope Katie. Hope Katie was a 13-year-old girl. She was as troubled as the rest of these kids. At the time, she was a ward of the state. She had a DHHS caseworker, Margaret Bragdon, who seemed attentive and to talk to her a lot and actually seemed unlike the ones we talked about a couple of them. To be on top of this kid and to have her best interests at heart and to be very engaged in what was going on with her, police started talking to Hope Katie in 1990. From Margaret Bragdon's notes, you can tell that they were intimidating her. At one time, they called her a fucking bitch. Mm -hmm. She said they were rude to her. This is a 13-year-old girl. A 13-year-old girl with emotional issues and with no adult around to advocate for her. With no adult. They talked to her without Bragdon or anyone else present. Bragdon says a couple times in her notes from the time, and she said... it just recently at the hearing that she was surprised police never talked to her or asked her anything. And she, and she kept a journal, just like, remember, during the uh, Logan Marr thing, I said, I thought they must have to keep journals as part of their job. Well, apparently it is, because I read it in one of these articles, that part of their job as a caseworker is to keep uh, a record in a uh, written journal of their interactions. And she kept a really good journal. She did, and there are excerpts from it in this 104-page document yeah. that are great to read because they totally contradict what police said Pam Ames said at the 1992 trial that Hope had just come forward. Well, police have been badgering Hope since 1990 to testify. What police and Pam Ames didn't tell the defense was that Hope, Katie, who said she saw from a distance, she was by a dumpster some 30 yards away, at night on a rainy Portland night, saw Tony Sanborn kill Jessica Briggs. She had 2200 vision. She didn't wear glasses, and even when she did, they didn't correct her vision very well because of she had an optic nerve, a degenerative optic nerve Mm -hmm. issue. It was known to police. This was known to them in 1990-91. There's multiple documentation is showing that this was a discussed Yeah, because issue. she was a ward of the state. There was a record of her medical issues. And she also had hearing yeah. issues. She claimed she could hear them talking and recognize their voices, even though she didn't know them that well. Well, she had severe hearing issues. And she also had emotional and mental issues. She had been in Amhi, which was uh, the Augusta, Augusta Mental, mental Health, Health Institute, yeah. which was a state hospital back then, the state. Now it's but called, what, Riverfront or something? Riverfest. No, <laughs> Riverfest. River. <laughs> It's called something nice because, you know, you don't want things to be called bad things. So, Amy Fairfield, the lawyer for Tony Sanborn, laid out in her document the Brady violations of the prosecution delaying evidence and, in some cases, withholding it as they did about their star witnesses' vision problem that I think certainly would have been a point in the case of Pam Ames in the case, um, Hope was 16 when she testified. There's an excerpt in the thing. <laughs> Pam Ames asked Hope if she has vision problems, and Hope says she does. And Pam Ames asked her if she did in 1989, and and Hope says no, but she did. And all the evidence was there that she did, and the, the poor little girl was just a But I have liar. to wonder about the defense attorney. I know it wasn't kind of fair because they didn't have information, 
But I just wonder how much they were paying attention because if she brought that up, I don't know. It just seems... I would wonder why she brought it up, but it sounds like the defense didn't have a lot of time. And, and one of the... Well, one of the issues, which it always is on appeal, is, is ineffective counsel. So... Although they didn't in this, they didn't say the counsel was ineffective for whatever reason, and we're not sure why, although there have been some vague references into the press that the innocent proje- Innocence Project was involved, although I can't find anything on there. I would like to ask Amy Fairfield, but we didn't have time to do that. The um, the the newspaper reporters of the state who do this for a living did have time to do it, and nobody in any of these articles appeared to have asked why was this looking, started to look at again. I mean, Tony Sanborn has always maintained his innocence, but him maintaining his innocence isn't going to have them decades later start, anybody start looking in into it. In an unprecedented decision. It's an unprecedented, so... I mean, historical. So... Amy Fairfield laid out the Brady violations as well as what she called misconduct by the police mm-hmm. and by Pam Ames. And we'll talk a little more about that because I just want to get to the end. She also pointed out, because there's there have been references to, in fact, semen being found on Briggs's underpants. And they did and, a swab. Of her. And they did a swab, but no other references to any of that is... And we know... No matter whose DNA is on there, and that was in the very early days of DNA, and I don't even know if the Portland Police Department was doing DNA testing, although they did test semen for blood type and stuff like that. But all that would show is she had sex with somebody. You know, it doesn't... Semen... But even then, you know... It would connect her with someone. So Amy Fairfield says in her motion for bail, not only that there's evidence like the Charles Hall 2005 confession and other things that might even point to... Tony Sanborn's innocence, but she points out that the misconduct and the Brady violations almost make that a moot point. The fact that he was convicted on just about nothing are reason to dismiss the case. And she also says in her motion, the files and records are voluminous in this case, and the suppressed evidence has made this case incredibly difficult to parse through, as there appears to be a massive effort to mask withheld evidence on the part of state actors. Undersigned counsel, that's she and her team, has worked on this case nearly every day with rare exceptions since being assigned in May 2016. Through diligence and persistence, newly discovered evidence is surfacing on a regular and frequent basis, the likes of which are hopefully never seen again. And it's funny, you read this document and you read a lot of, like, you'd almost feel it was legal hyperbole if you weren't so kind of blown away by what had happened. Yes. She also points yeah. out the horror I know, the horror of the crime, the way Jessica was eviscerated, points to somebody who's more of a violent person or who has behaved that way in the past. And she points out that Tony is a gentle guy and he had never had, despite what Pam Ames called his, you know, history of violence and stuff, he really didn't have one. He was, like a lot of the kids, he was a street fighter and had gotten into scrapes. He got a OUI in December 1989, before he was arrested, he had taken off when he was supposed to testify. He, I think he had some minor drug things. He had also uh, driving on suspended license, which I can tell you from working in a law office in Maine, that's a pretty common thing to get after an OUI, because what happens, OUI is operating under the influence. Uh, you get that, and then your license is suspended, and then you keep driving because you have to get to work or whatever, so they see you driving and you get that one. So that was pretty common. But everything he had was nonviolent crimes. Right. Like, he wasn't, like, 
a serious, like going around raping girls and stuff no, when he was no, a teenager. Or attacking people. He had no assaults or any, despite, you know, his knife-loving ways. And so, about two weeks ago, Tony Sanborn was let out on bail after 27 years in prison. Which is... And unprecedented, uh, it's unprecedented said. in the state of Maine. He awaits a court date. I think Fairfield and others rooting for people's constitutional rights are hoping the state will just dismiss the charges. I give the judge, Wheeler, I give her a lot of credit for taking this seriously because we know that the state hates to admit... Joyce. Joyce Wheeler, we know the state hates to admit they fucked up. And one of the articles, Fairfield, says that she does credit the uh, assistant um, attorney general. Sorry. Not Pam Ames. No. She does credit the current assistant attorney general for being open to... He was actually helpful. Although when this motion was filed in early April, the AG's office was quoted in a Portland Press-Herald story saying they were going to fight it. But I don't think they understood what the overwhelming amount of firepower on the defense side was at the time. Oh, this is a quote from an article that was in the paper last week. In a phone interview Monday, Fairfield lauded Assistant Attorney General Donald Maycumber, who assisted Assistant Attorney General Pamela Ames in prosecuting Sanborn 25 years ago. Maycumber is now representing the state in Sanborn's current motion for, for bail. And I would say that... I would say that if Pamela Ames was still in that office, it might not be happening the way it's happening. I agree. I totally agree, especially given and her I, reaction to this. First of all, Amy Fairfield tr- wants her to testify and tried to subpoena her and, and went to her Waterville she's office. Not ducking her. She had to chase her around. She was finally managed after days to give her the subpoena. She said she's never had so much difficulty subpoenaing a person. Well, and lawyers aren't that hard to find her in the office. Yeah, but they also court. know how to avoid a subpoena. They do. And then Pam Ames gave some phone interviews. She claimed on Channel 8 that Jessica Briggs was a prostitute and Tony Sanborn was her pimp. Which is funny because I don't think... I haven't read the trial transcript, although I would like to now. Me too. I I think Pamela Ames is going to be thrown right under a bus. I think she she is. Because she is not in that office anymore. Whether or not she deserves it. I don't even know if the fact... If Jessica Briggs was a prostitute or sex worker or even just... The kind of kid living on the street who had to give a blowjob or two or whatever so she could eat. And Tony Sanborn was her quote-unquote pimp <laughs> or whatever. Oh, and he was mad because he was she wasn't giving him her tips from DeMillo's or Which, some bullshit. I have not read that anywhere else in any think, document, in any of the police things we have, in anything else. I think she's pulling that out of her ass. I think she is, too. Before we go on to talk about, we're going to talk about the various, I just want to say... Since Tony Sanborn has been in prison, he's been not only a model prisoner, but more than a model prisoner. He got a GED fairly early. They have all these letters from people for his, both for his 1994 appeal and for this, lauding him. He's involved in literacy programs, teaching other prisoners to read. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, there's and you can read it. There's one that he's involved in about, like, um, long-distance dads, or helping guys reunite with their children. Because apparently has a daughter, Santana. And I just want to, I don't want to read all these, but there was one I found poignant from his cousin. Even the misspellings I find a little poignant. Oh, I know. And this was written to Amy Fairfield last September, and it's from his cousin, Jackie Spaulding. And it says, to whom it may concern, I am Jacqueline Spaulding, I am a cousin of Tony Sanborn. 
We grew up in the same environment. We had to deal with a lot of different things growing up. Parents that did not know how to parent. Alcohol was a major factor in our life. Abuse followed. Yet my cousin Tony always knew how to make me feel safe. He was there through many of my beatings and somehow always found a way to make me not hurt so bad. He has a heart of gold and puts everyone else before himself. I feel it's unfortunate that he had to spend most of his life someplace where he clearly does not belong. If he had the right people backing him, he would have been proven innocent like anyone who knows him knows that he is. I would see him when we were growing up protecting anyone who needed it, not caring about his own safety. I feel the justice system was looking for an easy target, and unfortunately, like many times before in our past, my cousin Tony was it. Just talk to him for a moment, take a moment, look in his eyes. You will see a soul of a great man, not a killer. I would trust him with the life of my children. Sincerely, his loving cousin, Jacqueline Spaulding. I mean, she just pretty much sums up the entire story right there. And I want to say something. I don't know if this is the best place, but when this happened, I was not living in Portland. Actually, might have been living here at the time of the the murder, but I was not at the time of the trial. But as I was rereading the articles about him, it struck me as very improbable that a 16-year-old boy would... It's not improbable that a 16-year-old boy would, in a fit of passion, kill his girlfriend. That's happened many, many times. But the way she was killed and the way she was disemboweled and the whole thing does not sound like that type of crime. And that is the way the crime was characterized as a crime of passion. And one of the articles in the Press Herald, I want to... So Tony Sanborn's attorney, Amy Fairfield, she contacted an FBI profiler to get an opinion just about the facts of the crime itself. Who would have committed this kind of crime? And he reviewed it, and he's going to submit a written opinion at the new trial. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, The profile's name is John Philpin. He said in a phone interview that Sanborn, at 16, was too young and too inexperienced to have killed Briggs, whose remains showed signs of deliberate brutality that exceeded the crime of passion described by the prosecutors. Philpin, this is, I'm quoting from this Press Herald article of April. Oh, April 11th. 11th. Okay. So Philpin said that many perpetrators of so-called one-off killings will snap to their senses the moment they see the damage they've inflicted on another human being. That's not what happened here, Philpin said. It wasn't a one-off kind of deal. Oh, my God, what have I done? There's a much larger dimension, terrorizing, humiliating, and destroying. The focus on the street kids to the exclusion of all uh, and I'm still quoting here, this focus on the street kids to the exclusion of other possible suspects was an immediate red flag to Philpin, who also reviewed trial transcripts, investigation records, and documents filed in the case. At the time of Briggs' murder, the main state pier was partially occupied by a Bath Ironworks dry dock. Naval ships docked regularly, with sailors staying aboard the ships or in nearby barracks. Philpin said he found no records that indicate police checked the background of sailors who may have had they did not that night. Another avenue of investigation could have been the BIW, Bath Ironworks, workers themselves. A second shift of BIW employees got off work about 12.10 a.m. May 24th, around the time Briggs was seen walking toward the pier with an unidentified young man. Philpin also said the police did not endeavor to reconstruct what he described as the choreography of the crime, an attempt to recreate how Briggs and her killer moved through the crime scene, leaving behind the trail of clues that investigators found the next morning. In a functional and well-run investigation, detectives are chasing all manner of angles at once. You start with your evidence, you start with your crime reconstruction... 
Philpin said, you do not start with a theory, and this is another area of compromise for this investigation. They focused their investigation on a small group of street kids. They figured they would get anything they needed to know from those street kids, and to me that was a terrible mistake. And I have to say that I agree with him 100%. Yep. So your point about that kind of dovetails into one of my big issues with this whole thing, and that's the police attitude toward these kids in general. I feel like the police had attitudes not, they may sound contradictory, but not so much. They saw the kids as problems and pains in the ass. Mm -hmm. They saw them as troublemakers. They saw them, though, as easily manipulated. And, that you know, we know that police who have been doing this for a long time know how to get criminals, adult criminals, to give up the goods and talk about shit. And it must have been a really fun cat and mouse thing like for these cops to, to manipulate these kids into doing what they wanted. I know, like, Jerry Rossi wasn't a kid, and they played much harder ball with him. I hope Katie, it seems like seems like they just intimidated her. Yes. And and, I, I, and it sounds like they did some good cop, bad cop yes, stuff with her. Which I'm sure works very well on a young but young if somebody person. So when you volunteer at the youth center, it was only a couple years after this, and I would say the atmosphere was still... Well, I want to say about, about the youth center. center. Yeah, talk about well, the youth center. Well, first of all, I used to be a volunteer, like, 93 to about 95 or 6, and then I started working full time I couldn't keep doing it what they used to call us was mentors and uh, I was obviously assigned to the um, girls I want to talk about the youth center first of all what it used to be like it's called Long Creek Youth Development Center some bullshit now and it's a different building we can post a picture of the original building online but the original premise of the youth center and it wasn't called the youth center it was something like the main boys farm or something like that was never supposed to have fences the guy that set it up and i i looked online to try to find the history of it i could not find it so maybe we will before our next time and i can fill you in but i do know from when i was a when i was a volunteer there they went through it with us because at the time in the early 90s it still had no fences and the person who was interviewing me because you it was kind of like a job well, you interview. Think about the early 90s i mean this murder happened in may 1989 yeah. so the early 90s wasn't, it wasn't much long it was after the same that era. the woman who was interviewing me filled me in on the youth center and the the philosophy back in the mid 1800s was that there wouldn't be fences because it was not a prison. It was a place for troubled young men because it was for men back then. There was a girls' place up in Hollowell, Maine, near Augusta. It's set up the same way. It's a bunch of buildings with no fence around it. It was supposed to be a place for them to live. They were to learn trades and learn. They had a farm. Like they used to at the Augusta Mental Health Institute, yep. too. They had a farm. They would learn, and and they would try to be rehabilitated. Uh, when I went there, when I was a, when I was there, they had places called cottages. It was a, it was like a campus. The cottages were these rundown buildings. They have some older ones. That the original building is a very interesting looking kind of octagonal building with these turrets on it. They have these brick buildings around it that are also from the late 1800s that are like look like houses. And they had newer buildings that were was what, where the girls were in some of the newer. They were in very bad condition. 
when I um, used to volunteer there, and they've since uh, the newer ones have since been torn down. The uh, brick original ones have been used. I'm not sure exactly what they're being used for. Probably state offices, because that's what a lot of stuff has been done. But I used to go there, and I would. My job was just to go there and spend an hour with the, one of the girls. I was assigned. I actually had two girls for a while because I had been assigned to a girl named Melissa, and she was 14, pregnant. Her boyfriend, air quotes. Hmm. was 33 or something, yeah. a friend of her father's. And that was the case with a lot of these girls. Uh-huh. The other girl, I can't remember her name, but she also had a boyfriend in his late 20s. And they... What is wrong with those They guys? were both in there because they were in the foster care program. They both ran away from foster homes all the time. And they wanted to live back at home with their mother or they lived on the streets. They were in a lot of different foster homes and both of them had been sexually abused in these homes. Not all, and I'm not saying that about all foster homes because there are a lot of very, very good foster homes and the people who are take on these children, some of them are wonderful people and really help their kids. But there's there's so many people that take advantage of children. Now Including I can't remember what cops, my point was. The Her, fences. Yeah, the, the setup of the youth center when it was first conceived was there wasn't a need for fences because they weren't it wasn't a prison they were trying to rehabilitate kids and i think that the whole thing when michael chitwood he was the police chief of portland i noticed you were careful not to say chitwood i know he was the police chief in portland late 80s to he was probably here for uh, 10 years or so and uh, there was uh, quite a difference i thought in the attitude of of some of the police when he was here he Better came or worse worse he came from philadelphia he bit and bitched about there being no fence and said that that these kids are just coming back and going on the streets which maybe they were but maybe if they were well yeah they were but if there were some kind of structure in place to help them i know instead of trying to punish them because punishing them clearly wasn't working and when i was there one of the things that really really upset me and still does and it's still going on is they have a solitary confinement thing there that they put kids in all the time and solitary confinement to me is torture and i really don't see why any child should it's be torture in for solitary confinement. And, and you, it's, it, but you think kids, they're still developing. And almost all these kids, I'm sure, have uh, emotional and mental issues. And there were some kids in there that were in there for violent crime. I'm not, I'm not sugarcoating it. There were, there were rapists in there. There was a girl that had killed her grandmother and stabbed her a hundred times. Um, she got out when she was 18 because she went in when she was like 12. But it's all but connected. It's like you can't just ignore them the first half of their lives, throw them in a, basically a prison. No. I and digress. No, you're not digressing at all because this leads to this atmosphere like the Portland Press Herald, I mean the main Sunday Telegram, today had an article about how you know this big front page feature story on you know the street kids of the this yeah, of the late Briggs 80, yeah <coughs> Sanborn era. I felt it was kind of superficial and that it talked about just this culture of these kids hanging out and and you know there were being less restrictions on the kids and the kids leaving the youth center when they should have been there and that type of thing. But it doesn't really talk about what these problems were and my why these problems were, what the roots of these things are. And I think a lot of it's attitude. And one of the things that really struck me reading through the, the bail motion is the disposable 
lives yeah. that that the police obviously felt these kids had and I'm not even I'm not just talking about the kids who were close to this murder who were treated with such manipulation and disrespect but I'm even talking about the girls in the Jerry Rossi situation these girls who are 13 and 14 who were taken by two adult men to an Augusta hotel gotten drunk to the point where they couldn't remember what they did and raped and then the cop brings the girl in to the police station shows her photos yeah, that those guys took she didn't she said she didn't remember any she of that she didn't remember it they showed her photos of it she was very upset she didn't really give them what they wanted but she did want to press charges, and he said, well, you'll have to go up to Augusta to do that. They couldn't have cared less about these girls. Well, you know, it kind well, of... Let me read something from this. In the in Crystal Breen, one of the girls, who's now a woman, and I say girl, she was 13 or 14 at the time, um, was interviewed in June 2016 by Sanborn's defense team. And she told investigators for the defense team that she had been summoned to the police station back then in 19... 19- 90 or whenever it was, by Young and Daniels, the two cops investigating the case, and was shown the photographs depicting her in bed with Rossi in sexual positions. And both of them were naked. She had originally told police that when she went into the hotel room, she had her clothes on. When she woke up, she had her clothes on and didn't remember doing anything. She indicated that the pictures were too hard for her to look at because although she was fairly certain Rossi did something to her in the hotel room in Augusta, she was not certain. She told the detectives that she wished to press charges against Rossi, to which Young told her that the conduct happened out of his jurisdiction and any complaints would have to be made through the Augusta Police Department. Breen said she asked her mother to help her with this, and I think I mentioned this earlier, and her mother told her, and this is so main, that they did not have the gas money to get to Augusta. And I'm not saying her mother was any saint either. The girl wouldn't have been in this situation if her, you yeah. know, if she lived in a stable home. But the motion points out it should also be noticed, noted that nowhere in Detective Young's report does he record Breen's age, but rather referred to Breen as a young woman in his report. And I don't think that was out of any respect for Crystal. I think it was to hide the fact that, that he was talking to a man who had raped, and not only statutory raped, although that's rape, but gotten drunk and raped a 13-year-old girl, and the cops were going to use that against him to force him to testify that he, you know, to implicate Tony Sanborn yeah, in a so murder. they didn't care. No, and, and they didn't they, give they, a shit and, about the and girl. He could, he could say it's not my jurisdiction, but I'm sure that if he really wanted to help her out, he could have contacted the Augusta police. Well, anything. And, and what day and age does a cop talk to a 13-year-old girl who was raped by an adult man and not fucking do something about it? And also, you know what it is? It, it kind of ties into the to this the uh, show we did on Logan Marr about how the the, the DHS. Yes. Not all. I don't want to pay everyone. With We're the only same talking brush. about the bad ones, not the good ones. But some people they think of these kids as less than them or street kids or and maybe they were burned out cops i don't know but to me it's like uh you know screw her she's just a freaking street kid or she's just a little slut that decided to go with this guy and get drunk so it's her own fault and not even giving a shit because she was just a tool for him to use against this guy to get what he wanted right another 13 year old girl was hope katie and hope katie was really really i wanted to say something about her because we didn't talk about it but it is mentioned she was in the youth center, and yes. one of the things when I was a mentor that they we had rules about what we could talk about with the kids, and one of the things they were 
we were told to shut down as soon as they started because they did this all the time being kids was when they started to tell war stories yeah and brag about stuff we were supposed to tell them i don't want to hear that right brag about being and involved they in crime yeah and they would they would tell me they were going to escape all the time mm-hmm. which i every time they told me that i said you know i'm supposed to report you and, and so then they, but they would lie about shit, and she, I'm sure she was trying. And to don't m- tell me the cops who dealt with these kids a lot weren't aware of this dynamic. Well, I wonder if we found out that she had been being badgered by them. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just wondering if she had been bragging around to people. Oh yeah, I saw it. Because when you're in prison, whether you're a kid or an adult, you have to make yourself look tough, right. and you will make and, stuff up. And also, up. she was a 13 year old girl. They're desperate for attention yes. anyway. And I'm sure she was more desperate for attention. She wouldn't be the first to make a story up. At one point, she and this was in 1991, she told her caseworker, Margaret Bragdon, that she had seen Tony at Saco Beach, and he had looked at her in a way that really scared her. And and her caseworker wrote in her notes and then asked the cops, is Crystal, uh, not Crystal, Is is Hope safe? And the cops were like, Tony has been in prison for months and months and months. She didn't see Tony. And so this should have it raised a lot of flags for everybody. First of all, Hope makes up stories. Or she can't see worth shit. And also, she can't <laughs> see worth shit. Enough to, she either mistook somebody for Tony, or I. my theory when I read that was she wanted, she wanted to make up a dramatic yeah. story. And here's a dramatic story that makes her... Somebody who's scared of something and gets her, you know, some nice, positive, caring attention. And I'm not even criticizing that. These kids needed to feel they had people no, cared. You know, I want to say, I want to share something uh, that really got to me when I was there, as when I was a volunteer. And even though it's kind of corny, is one of the things that we volunteered to do was make birthday cake for the inmates. Some of them had never in their lives had a birthday cake or a birthday party ever and we would like pick names and you know they would just randomly give you somebody it wasn't like I made them for just the girls in my cottage Um, one of them I made was for for a kid that was like 16 and one of the other volunteers told me that when she gave him the cake, he started crying because he had never had a birthday uh, cake. Yeah. Now that is sad. It is sad. And that's the kind of lives. I mean, there was the, uh, there, one of the, my girls was showing me pictures. Uh, she had some photographs of her, someone had given her when she was, she was like a toddler or something. So she's showing me these pictures of herself as a toddler because she was wanted to show them to me. Not to say, look how horrible my life was, but like, oh, look, here's a picture of me when I was a baby. And I'm like, oh, nice. I'm looking at it, and the the house she was in was, I mean, it was disgusting. The surroundings of this baby sitting there in this, like, squalor. You just, you don't understand what their lives are like, and I'm not saying it's any... I'm saying the police could have approached this in a totally different way. Well, it's just like we were saying before. Then they're not treating them like human beings. No, they're not. And also, just the fact, what I said to you before, before we were recording, what I do not understand is how a 13 year old girl can be in an interview room with two cops without anyone there to even some like a court appointed you know now they have um, and these interviews weren't recorded yeah they weren't recorded but they they have people now like and guardian, I don't know if they did like guardian, guardian and, and yeah. like like simon baker in that tv show oh is that what he was yeah. well no i i used a friend of mine's wife used to do that she had been an attorney and she she right, retired like, she used to do that court appointed guardians Basically, to help to advocate. help advocate for kids in the legal system but even just anybody 
anybody in there sitting next to her. I mean, her social worker did say she was surprised that no one ever called her. But why is she? Is it because she was a ward of the state that they were able to do that? It's not fair. I don't know, but some of these it's kids. Not right. I wonder how often Tony Sanborn's parents, who were very much around, were ever in any of the interviews that he was subjected to. It's just like in that make, uh, making in a murderer one where that yeah. poor kid was I in know. there. <laughs> oh, my God. And one thing that's, and maybe it's the wrong point to say this, I just want to point out, you know, people can be very cynical. I, I think there's a lot of people who think if somebody's convicted of a crime that they probably deserved it and they should be in prison. And there's a lot of ways to, to for people to point at Tony Sanborn in his young life and say, well, why is he getting out? But just like Stephen Avery and Making of a Murder, even if he did do it, justice wasn't served. The trial was a farce. The 104-page document that Amy Fairfield, the lawyer, and her team spent a year putting together it shows, I mean, it's not just one thing or another. It's funny because Pam Ames, the assistant AG, who's really on the hot seat because of this, says, well, even if Hope Katie retracted, which in a very dramatic moment she retracted yes. her thing just in like court Mason. in April, you know, has, there's all this other evidence against him. And you look, and there is not, there's not one iota of physical evidence against this kid. It's entirely based on these coerced, manipulated, so-called confessions from these kids who who the who and well jerry rossi again not a kid but who his choice was be convicted of rape and go to prison or testify that tony sanborn said he was going to kill jessica and, and his and tony sanborn regardless of his innocence or guilt his constitutional rights were violated many times and whether you are guilty or innocent you have a right to be represented. The prosecutor and the defense attorneys have to follow every single rule or everything is tainted. You know, I, I'm sorry if it's inconvenient to you that, you know, some evidence doesn't line up, but that's the way it is. And if someone who's guilty gets off because of it, I'm sorry, but it's not. It protects all of us. It does. It, I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche, it, and it sounds like there are people out there who are going to say, yeah, you're saying it, but I'm never going to get arrested for anything. You well, never know. You never know. You never know. And Fairfield points out in her memorandum that an injustice was done to Jessica Briggs, whose yes. killer has probably never been found. And God knows, if he did that to her, he may have done it to other people. Yeah. That a huge injustice was done to Tony Sanborn, who has spent 27 years of his, his whole life, 44 yeah. year life in prison, and you know, a year and a half even before he was convicted, he was yeah. in prison. Yeah. But she he also points out that an injustice was done to the people of Maine because we depend on the people, even if it's not about who you pay your taxes. You know that that. Our taxes go to this government system, but just we depend on our justice system to do its job right and to not pluck people out of thin air and make them guilty of a crime and not only wasting money, but wasting lives. And also, in a more, to me, and this isn't in her motion, but it's, you know, in a more philosophical sense, every single fucking time this happens, it makes it harder for people who are on the fringes of society to be taken seriously, to be treated fairly, to have to have lives that are productive and benefit others. What a what a society we would live in if instead of that people being marginalized 
and generalized and, and just assumed to be guilty because of the lives they lead. Mm. We lived in a society where we tried to attack the roots of that and to find yeah. the guilty people. You know, this is the other side of the coin of Michael Skakel, yeah. Martha Moxley. Tony Sanborn was immediately, because of who he was, yeah. considered guilty of this crime and because the police didn't have enough imagination and creativity to figure that, out that who FBI might have really profile. done this. And they're, they're lazy. They and didn't they're lazy. Look. You know, and, and, you know, on the other hand, you had Skakel, who obviously was involved from day one and nobody because, you know, same age as Tony Sanborn, yep. but because he was from a rich, powerful family, uh, nobody could well, believe he would have done it. And the other thing about Tony Sanborn that we didn't talk about was he did have an alibi. He went to, he was actually at his parents' house that night. He went to bed around 9.30. His dad didn't see him until 8.30 in the morning. Or and, either that or he went to bed at and 8.30. And the nature of the house they lived in was that he was up on the third floor yeah. and he couldn't have easily left the house without somebody else knowing. And it said under testimony, his father said it was possible that he could have slipped out even though he didn't have a key. He could have left the door unlocked. But yeah, it's possible. Anything's possible. But did you hear him leave? Did you? He was there in the morning. Yeah. He was there at night. And they never found any blood on his clothes. They never found a murder weapon, which is probably in Castle Bay. Oh, and Bay. there was another thing. But, but I just want to say oh, with yeah. Tony Sanborn, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. There was also no anecdotal evidence about his behavior the next day, about from his parents that he had acted differently or that they found or bloody clothes. clothes which or, the, obviously the murderer would have had. Or Oh, the other thing I was going to say is there was one other eyewitness testimony that they talked about, a Bath Ironworks worker who saw a young man talking to, to Jessica. The kid on the bicycle. Yes. I brought that up. But he didn't identify him as Tony, but then later they they, they kind of him to identify kind of, him as Tony. Yeah, they kind of got him to do it. It's just it's very disturbing. So, um, there was a a Bath Ironworks worker who said he saw a boy on a bicycle with Briggs, mm-hmm. okay. um, walking toward going toward the pier. And I can't find much on that. But one thing I one thing I did found interest interesting was this. Guy Dave Schwartz, who is apparently another street person, or at least someone who just hangs out outside a lot. And he was interviewed multiple times beginning May 28, 1989, four days after her body was found. And he told detectives he was on the waterfront the night she was murdered and said he wo- he had been sleeping on a bench near the waterfront in front of the Casco Bay Lines with the, the um, ferry boats. And he heard someone scream. He heard the crack of something like a two-by-four hitting a surface, heard a splash, and then saw a man walking away from the area where he heard the noises. In the next several days and weeks, and this is actually a footnote in the motion, in the next several days and weeks, Detectives Daniels and Burton conducted multiple interviews of Schwartz where he gave further detail and, according to the detectives, gave some differing details from previous interviews. On at least two occasions, the detectives took him from the main youth center, where apparently he was staying to, because who wasn't, to the waterfront for the interviews. He also worked with somebody from the main college of art, where you went to school, who drew a composite of the man he saw from approximately 30 feet away (laughs) that night. Despite interviews beginning days after the murder, um, the defense only got all of the reports on this on anything relating to Dave Schwartz on or about May 15th, 1992, and that was shortly before the trial was to begin. 
So that's another thing. And, and apparently nothing, not much was ever done with that. And since it didn't fit their Tony Sanborn scenario, it didn't, doesn't seem to have gone, gone far. But that's yet another thing they withheld well, the, from the defense. The it's like they withheld of, every fucking thing I think from the defense. In, I think it's in this motion for bail, too, but I I think because I think I just read it last night when I was reading this was there was one bath ironworks worker who came forward and said he saw a young man or her talking to a young man or her with a young man one but they told I believe they told Tony that hundreds yes, of bath yes, ironworkers yes. had seen him yes. with her yes what happened was to they told him. him they told him that they had talked to dozens and dozens of bath iron work workers who had seen her with him with her that night but they had only actually talked to six or seven bath and only words. one said he saw her. he saw a young man with a bicycle is and he's the we one that saw the oh yeah he's the one that is and as we said earlier thing. nobody had said tony was had a bicycle in those days walking with her towards the pier yeah so there's a lot of stuff in there about this group of kids different kids in the group some of the ones involved in this and other ones going from Kennedy Park to Peppermint Park yes. to and the so we're meeting gonna, up with different people we walking around. We're going to do a video we walking are. We're going to do a video walking tour, all the important points in this story. Although I don't think it's going to be as seedy anymore. But there's Unfortunately, still, it's not. There are still some seedy Since parts. we have to do it in the evening because of our schedules, maybe there will be some drunk college guys like being obnoxious. No, they'll probably be homeless. They're still homeless. Oxford Street. There will be some panhandlers. Well, so there will be some tourists. Tony Sanborn's parents lived on Oxford Street, which is not a good area. Well, just and that's let me where the say, center is fun. I hope it's nice weather. <laughs> but it's but that it's just another example. It's funny because this is around the same time of year. Almost. It is around the same time yeah. of year, so it'll be. But these kids were wandering around. Oh, I I can't finish what I wanted to say about the cops. So oh, okay. and that <laughs> is, I, I I've always over. been I've always been bothered, and people love this on police shows and stuff, but it it gets on my nerves about the way police even with adults, manipulate and lie, and I know they're allowed to, and they think they're clever and all this shit, and force people, in a lot of cases vulnerable people or people who are in shock or people with issues, to say things they don't want to say or get them to believe things they don't want to believe, lie to them until the person thinks they're going nuts. I mean, we saw this with Ken Littleton and the Moxley yeah, thing. So we, thinking of that. We've yep. seen this. Instead of doing what they do like in Britain and places like that where the person gives a statement, they get out of the person, what the person saw or did or whatever, and then they ask questions, so lots of times the same questions in different ways to try to find inconsistencies and trip the person up. And frankly, I think that's a much more efficient investigative tool than than trying to out-clever somebody and manipulate them into stuff that, tell me these guys didn't know Hope Katie was lying. They badgered her for a year and a half until she finally said what they wanted her to say, or they finally at least formed a statement that said what she... And how can you even trust a young, a young girl who, first of all, has very poor vision and bad hearing, has emotional problems, might have some some mental def, uh, deficiencies. How can how can anyone even trust? It's what very she cynical says? of them to use that. As and Pam Ames said, and it was the they were talking themselves into the fact that she saw. It. Well, she di- she didn't. It was the keystone it. to the to the state's case. And you know, the motion for bail lays out a great case for all this being just bullshit. But Amy Fairfield's very good point about the whole thing is 
most of this was not presented to the defense. And by law, by our Constitution, it's supposed to. That's what a Brady violation is. Matt got all worked up when he was talking about it with us. And if the prosecution has evidence, it has to be shared as soon as yes. possible with the defense. It's not a game. You're, it's a person's life. And when it's a murder trial, it's the defendant's life as well as the person who died. For the person who died, the truth deserves to come out. And the and and part of the motion for bail and Fairfield's request that the case be dismissed is that this goes beyond, you know, the kind of oversights or accidents that happen in the course of a trial or long investigations. But it was deliberate and overwhelming on the part of the state. The and, mis- they, and, con- like, and so it it amounts to misconduct by yeah. Ames and by the police. It is misconduct. The fact that they said that that interview with Jerry Rossi from Florida. The, that they didn't give it to the defense, that was just a good faith oversight or yeah. something. Bullshit. Bullshit. And I wanted to ask Matt about that because I thought it didn't matter if it was a Brady violation, whether you, whether it was by accident. It's yeah, like if you ignorance of the laws. No, yeah, excuse if you me. accidentally like kill somebody or right. something. It's like, it reminds me of the old Saturday Night Live with Steve Martin. I didn't know murder was a crime. <laughs> <laughs> but well, let's talk about the Post-it notes. On the statements. Yeah. There's, there are two post-it notes in the document. There are the statements that Detective the Young, I think, reports, yeah. typed up based on the interviews. There are no, <laughs> They had no transcripts of the interviews as evidence. But there are two post-it notes. So one of the post-it notes, and, and these are stuck right on, on, Christina who's, on Christina Sprague. And she was... She was a friend. They do have it without the post-it note here. Right. She was one of she the... She was a friend of... Um, she was a friend of Jessica's, I she's, think. Yeah, she's one of the ones who... Who's, she said she saw scratches on Tony Sanborn's yes, face yes. after... It was another a vague street kid... Uh, it says... And, and so the, this post-it note says, Statements not sent as discovery per request of Detective Young. And, and it says, Christine Sprague, Glenn Brown, and Dottie Gammon. And Dottie Gammon was the girlfriend of either Glenn Brown or one of the other guys that people were... One of the guys who was interviewed, and yeah. I think she was Glenn they're, Brown's they're girlfriend. All, all the but but the, those three things, and then it's <laughs> and then it, there's a little like arrow, and it says, as Becky just said, statements not sent as discovery per request of Detective Young. And then there's a post-it over it that says to be changed to narrative report. So they took the transcripts and changed them to a nice narrative. And when a detective or any person takes a transcript and boils it down, you're going to get that person's perspective, especially when the person has a stake in the game, when they want to portray a certain point of view. It's just really disturbing. Well, like, you can't just pick and choose what you give to the defense. No, you can't. That's a Brady violation. (laughs) I mean, how is that okay? And the fact that they have this post-it note, and it's, I mean, that post-it note is just, it's right there in black and white that they don't intend to give this to the, you know, I'm going to, you know, put it in my own words and then give it to them. No, you can't do that. Right. Like, I I mean, how is that okay? I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's just, ugh. Anyways, so this case, we're going to have to do update on it. When are they going to have that trial the, the, in May? A date hasn't been set for the trial, and like I said, I think the judge is deciding whether there is even going to be one. She may just dismiss the charges. Is it going to be the same judge, Joyce Wheeler? I think so. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll yeah. keep you guys updated because I, I find this case interesting not only because of what it says about the justice system and stuff, but I feel it's one of those real main slice of life. Not that it can't have it happen anywhere, but when you see the photos and you read that document and it's the kids, you know, and they're hanging out in Kennedy Park and they're hanging out in Peppermint Park and they're mm-hmm. walking around the old poor and going to each other's houses and you can just picture it. You know, you can just picture them, yeah. you can just picture, and it's... Um, and I was going to say, like, I moved to Bangor in about 1991. I came back in the summer of 1993, so I kind of missed it. But I lived up on Munjoy Hill, which is close to Peppermint Park, is at the base of Munjoy Hill, um, which is a, a section of Portland. It's now a little gentrified, oh, but it's yeah. a... yeah. It was where all the um, Irish and Italians, there's still a lot of Irish and Italian families up there, but it was all the factory work, dock workers, factory workers, and people lived up there. There was a Nissan bakery up there. It was a working class neighborhood up there. Yes. There were some pretty houses up there. It had been farmland up until the late 1800s, and then it was populated with houses. But it was there was a lot of triple-deckers, and, and it was fairly seedy up until maybe the last 20 20 years. Yep. It was a beautiful, I loved living up there. I lived there in the mid 80s and then I lived through the uh, early 90s. So I used to walk, I didn't have a car until 1990. So I walked everywhere. I was probably walked by these kids all the time. There were kids always hanging out. I was older than them, about 10 years older. Mm. So I didn't. That didn't stop Terry Rossi. (laughs) I know. But I mean, I probably saw them. I mean, there's sketchy people all over the place. Not the kids, but other people. I mean, and I had to walk through those neighborhoods. You know what? There's no really bad neighborhoods in Portland. No. no matter what anyone says, it's a small city. The city itself is probably like 60,000 people. Oh. Um, but, you know. There are poor neighborhoods. There are and poor there are neighborhoods where bad things happen or but, are more likely yeah. to happen. And when we but have, I've never felt unsafe walking anywhere. I used to have to walk at night all the time because yeah. I didn't have a car. I'd work at the mall where I would have to take the last bus if I closed I worked in a store. There was a bus that came at 9.30 or 10, I can't remember, and it went to the end of the line, which was downtown. So I had to walk from downtown Portland up to my house on Montjoy Hill, which was probably about half a mile to a mile. It wasn't very, it's not a very long walk, but it was at night, at 10 or 11 at night. I used to do that all the time. Or sometimes I'd take the bus and I'd have to get off on Mellon Street, which is quite a ways down near the Deering Oaks Park, which, and that's not a very nice neighborhood at night either. And I would either walk up to Montreal Hill or take a cab. I didn't always have money for a cab. And I was never really afraid. Maybe I should have been, but I didn't. Well, I put it this way. I didn't have a choice. I had to, I had to get home. I mean, so I had I to walk. I don't know that I would have hung around the pier late at night. No. Especially with, no. You know, there's places down there now. It's um, a fairly. Even now it's not, it's not safe. Right. It's not safe because there's a lot of dark nooks and crannies. It's, and, yeah. and it'll be in our video. But there's, I mean, but it's also, there's a much more vibrant nightlife down there than there used to be. You know, but there's even then some there nice was bars. in the late 80s. But I, I've talked to people, old timers from Portland, uh, you know, like people who are in their 80s that lived here their whole lives. And that waterfront, now it's the old port, and it's a, you know, tourist attraction, it's cute, and it's quaint, and all this stuff. In the 70s, probably most of the time, I mean, up until the 70s, 1970s, it wasn't a safe place to be. There was fishermen, and, and their boats and stuff, it was a working 
waterfront, yep. a working harbor. There were a lot of second and third shift and operations. And people coming like and Bath going. Iron, you know? Iron Works. And, and the Navy. You have, you right. have people Navy men. And yeah, and you have transient workforce or people coming and going. Bad things can happen. People are drinking and also you and had carousing. The, the Greyhound station was within walking distance. Yeah. People could get off a bus and walk oh, yeah, down. That's true. We know from previous episodes how creepy people like to take buses. I wish we had, but I think this is a classic case of how, and I'll, I'll just give a little benefit of the doubt, prosecutors and police desperate to solve a crime. Well, they get a lot can, of pressure. Can, right, and they're under a lot of pressure. From the public and from from above, I'm sure. It's just like any other job. Your boss is telling you to do something that but, you know is probably not possible, but they're nagging you, and it's like... It's much easier to nail one of the street kids down there than it is to find a possible transient. Not, I don't want to say serial killer because we don't know if there were any similar. Although it would be well, interesting for us to brutal. see. But I mean, somebody was who killing. was beyond the pale as far as, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just like her boyfriend she wasn't just her stabbed, and pushed her in right, the water. Or hit over the head with she a rock. She was tortured. One of the documents we read said she had... She defensive had wounds. Def- she, uh, not just defensive wounds, but she had some superficial wounds that looked like she had been tortured prior to being killed. Yes, like the kind of stab maybe wounds it was that the FBI profiler guy. The kind of stab wounds that don't kill you, but somebody's poking at you with a yeah. knife. You know, and and if granted, a ma- an angry young man could do that. I'm not saying that. But I feel like the slit throat disembowelment. I feel like that kind of murder. It, get, it comes with, and I'm not an FBI profiler, obviously. I just play one on the podcast. Get it shows kind of a level of confidence yeah. that if it's a if it's a killing of passion or it's a 16 year old kid or something, they're not going to have confidence that I'm going to be able to do this. Take little time. She was lying prone. They can yeah. tell from the blood and wow. her injuries. Somebody was on top of her doing this to her, and it shows a level of confidence in what you're doing and how much time you have and what you can get away with. And then they dragged her. There were blood drag marks, I think I left that part out, to a gap in the pier and pulled her in the water. You think at Killing a Passion, you just leave the body there. Maybe you would have brought her over to the edge, you know, stabbed her and shoved her. You You wouldn't have tortured her and done all this stuff. I mean... You know, and and Tony Sanborn not wasn't outside the kind outside in the where everybody. I mean, there's other places right. that would be right. that, especially a street kid would know that would be private, more private. Right. He isn't going to go the doc. I mean, say, say he wanted to lure her somewhere and kill her. He isn't going to say, Jesse, let's go down to the main state pier and do this. It's let's go behind those bushes and or say, even a place like the park, right? Um, or a playground. I dated somebody around that time, and we used to go. There was a playground you know up near the eastern promenade that we used to go hang out to kiss and stuff and you know they have the uh i don't want to say jungle gym but you know like one of those wooden play structures right or something like that i mean you go somewhere for privacy right you're not going to go hang out at the friggin main state pier but if you're a girl walking down the street and some nice looking uh, she was probably walking say, home from demillo's yeah and someone says hey you know what you doing, and, and or he a may nice have just guy, or, or he, he may have just her. yeah, or maybe he said, you know, do you have a cigarette? Because her cigarettes were found on, or he, oh, and starts talking to her. Let's go over here and take a smoke. You know, yeah. oh, look at the moon, isn't it beautiful on the pier? Blah blah I mean, blah. You know, he could have been. I mean, if he's someone like I hate to jump to the conclusion, but but let's just say for purposes of what I'm gonna say that he was some kind of serial killer, like someone like Ted Bundy, who seems really nice guy. You know, oh hey, you know, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. You know. 
know, do you have a cigarette? Let's oh, you and know, as a and as not, a main street kid in the nineties, I mean, all this implies a certain level of savviness, like that Portland. Uh, like the main Sunday Telegram Today story made them sound like these savvy kids. They're main kids, and let's face it, they live in an environment that's dangerous in a lot of ways. It's dangerous to your health. It's dangerous to your well-being. It's dangerous as far as you being sexually assaulted or abused in a lot of ways. But those are all by people you know for the most part. And yes, yes, Maine is, I mean, I mean, it's not, people are... A little more reserved. They're not overly friendly like some parts of the country. But it's a fairly safe and friendly place. People you don't know wave well, to like you. Well, we said, if there, you're walking there down were only the 16 murders last year. Yeah. We said that. And then we saw Janet Mills, our attorney general, yeah. speak yesterday. And, you know, this may be a good time to segue into our recommendations. Yes. And we're going to recommend Crime Wave, yeah. even though it's over. It's over, but... <laughs> It's we a, went to it. It's I want April. First, I want to say they didn't have it last year. And Crime Wave is a one-day conference in Maine. This was the third year they had it, and it brings together mystery writers, most of them from Maine, some from out of state, for a day-long conference for fans of mystery, for fans of writing, and it's a lot of fun. We, and crime writers, true. Any and kind crime, of writers. crime writers, it's put actually. On, yep. It's put on by the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance in conjunction with the Maine Crime Writers, which is kind of a loose organization. We blog at MaineCrimeWriters.com, and we're all members of the MWPA, so it's... But but we didn't have it last year because enough people didn't sign up. I know. This year, it was a little close, but enough people did sign up. I think if more people realized what it was like... It's fun. I And I'm not a writer, but I have a good time. This year, you get was... You get... Coffee and pastries in the morning. There's you have the option of signing up for lunch, which yeah, is which I did because it was. I mean, it's it, good. Yeah, they have cold it cuts. Co- it costs one hundred and seventy-five dollars. Not the lunch, but you got um, Friday night. They gave the first Maine Crime Master Award to Tess Gerritsen, who writes the books that the Rosolian Isles TV show is based yes. on, and some other cool stuff, and just made a Maine horror movie all in Maine with yes. her son, which we're Called- gonna have to. Island Zero. If I wasn't busy next Saturday, we could go to Lewiston and see the screening of that. Yes, because I asked the assistant director was there with Tess. Tess Gerritsen lives in Maine. She lives in Camden. Her son, adult son, is a... Josh. He's a a documentary filmmaker. And she wanted to do a horror movie. Now, she had been... um, When she started her career... Tess Garrison was a romance writer, which I've never read any of her romances. And she was a doctor before that. And she was a doctor. The first book I read of hers was Harvest, which was a medical thriller about organs. They were making them in labs, or they were what they were doing was making them in women, like they were using women's uteruses to make these organs. Oh, yeah. for cancer. It was kind of gross. Yeah. Um, and she did a couple of those, and then she started the mystery ones that ended up being the Rosolian Isles um, series. But she's a she's a an entertaining and Gravity was a very good book, speaker. which apparently we'll have to do a whole show on that lawsuit. I I don't know if it's a lawsuit. I know. Yes, we were them. talking about it last night at the holiday. Oh, you were because yes. I remember when that movie came out, what? which I never saw, what? and I thought, I wonder if what? that's based on what happened. Book and this the is same a name. What happened? And this is a very superficial overview of it because it's very complicated. Is 
the the film studio bought the rights to it when the book came out. Okay. At some point, the stu- nothing was done. A lot of times when a book is option for a movie, nothing ever happens. Yeah, they, they just yeah. find the option to make it into a movie. The studio changed hands. She even wrote an extra scene for it that wasn't in the book. But eventually, whatever happened, this happened, they happened, blah, blah, blah. The movie came out, same name. Yes, it has the same, same name storyline. The, the Sandra Bullock character wasn't a surgeon as the, in the protagonist book, yes. in the book was. But other than that, it was pretty much the same. She got her option, but what you usually get when your book is made into a movie is you get you get royalties and you get a... When it actually gets made into a movie, you get some big bonus or oh, something probably, too. And, yeah. and she didn't get that stuff. And she rightly sued on the basis that it was her book that was made into the movie and they're saying no it wasn't it's just it it may seem like it but it's not at all changed hands the studio this is the studio's property now and i won't get into all the legalities and backs and forth but she's it's chilling for writers and stuff when you write something it's out there yeah it's out there but it's still your intellectual property or whoever has the rights to it and she had the rights to that, and it was taken, and millions and billions of dollars well, were made yeah. off well, of I, it. Well, it's funny, because I saw... And she did not benefit. I read a synopsis of it, and it sounded... It was weird, because it sounded, I thought, because of the title, oh, I wonder if it's... And then I read the synopsis, and I'm like, it sounds kind of like it, but not exactly like it. So I think they changed enough so they... They changed enough so they could try to claim that... It wasn't, right. but, yeah, whatever. Anyways. But whatever. It's like, but, you know, if you plagiarize, say you take, you cut and paste four paragraphs of something that's not fair use, and you change the words to synonym, to, yeah. you know, to, to the, uh, you get a thesaurus, yeah. and change some words, and you're still plagiarizing it. Yeah. The structure is the same, and so this is, but we digress. We're talking anyways, about crime wave. She, so, so she so was Friday night, they, and she was and that was open to the public. The whole thing takes place at the University of Southern Maine's Glickman Library, which is right off Interstate 295. It's a, nice, it's a very comfortable place. Oh yeah. There's parking. Lots of parking. It's um, the room it's in is Portland, very airy, and Portland's a great place to spend the night. And there's a lot of things to do. There's there. a lot to nice do. Restaurants. And just don't go on the pier in the dark. Well, <laughs> and with strange men, or but get drunk and go wandering on the pier and for a young college age. Young college age. And then on Saturday, it may seem like a long day, but there are panels. The first panel was with Tess and her agent Meg Ruley, and the moderator was Katrina Nitas Holm, who is a mystery novel reviewer. And, and I'll give Tess Gerson a lot of credit. She mentioned gravity a couple times. She never, ever, ever made any remarks, snide or otherwise, about the lawsuit or the movie. They talk about how to get your books published, her path to publication, which 30 years ago was a lot different than... And they should, they talked to her agent as well, Tess's agent. I said Meg Oh, Rulli. sorry. Oh, yeah, you did. Never mind. So there were panels like that during the day, and then there are also there were also some breakout workshops. Yes. James Heyman, who's on his fifth thriller... And is on the was on the New York Times bestseller list. Did one on plot. Chris Holm, whose second Michael Hendricks came out. It's a hitman who only kills other hitmen. Yes, I know his tagline the better. I need my own the killing tagline. kind. And this what's one, the second one? I can't remember. I don't know. But I wish you hadn't said that because now I need to know this. The I I know because he's. He's the killing but kind. he did a workshop on how to set the scene. There were other workshops. I was on one. It was called like the debutantes. Well, yours of, was a panel. I was on a panel. 
It was called The Debutantes because it was people who had recently published books, but the four of us were all on at least our second book. But we had not been published the last time Crime well, Wave was Well, that's the held. thing. Crime Wave... What, since that missed a year. Since that missed a year, you would have been debutantes. And on that year. panel, and it was a nice mix because it was Bruce it Coffin, was a good mix, yes. our good friend Bruce Coffin, a former Portland police detective. So hopefully he'll still be our not friend. Not one of the... And who <laughs> listens to our podcast, not one of the detectives. If he had been one of the guys on... I think he would have done it. because I he, think he would have kicked butt and found the right killer because that's Bruce. But it was him. It was Brendan Riley who writes international thrillers. Yeah. Dick Cass who writes kind of noir. I yes. want to call them jazz mysteries. Um, and this looks like it'll be good. And I his, his protagonist yeah. is kind of neat because he's an alcoholic who, he a, a recovering alcoholic. alcoholic. He buys this right. bar or, that's falling up like a bar that's seen better days. And we were moderated by Barbara Ross of the clam bake. I know. <laughs> and she said she's a fan of our podcast and she hadn't even heard the one where I plugged her book. Yeah, I know. So that was I fun. I thought that's why she said she that was, was fun. Fan. And Becky, Becky said I did a good job on that panel. Yes, I took some pictures. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can put a picture or two of that on our Well, we did have website. pictures on our uh, Facebook page. Oh, we have it on our Facebook page. Our Facebook page, which is Crime and Stuff. And there were books for sale by Kelly's Books to Go. Barbara Kelly, who is an independent bookseller. Yes. who And I like giving her a plug because she is very good to me. And she's nice a fan lady. of my books. And, and so she's, a, she's also the costumer for the Biddeford City Theater. I did not They're know doing that. The Wizard of oh. oh, so see the things you learn. But one of the nice things I like about Crime Wave is that everybody's right there. And if you want to hang out and meet with, your favorite author and, and, to, and sit next to your author and, and drink a cup of coffee and stand there and talk about stuff and look out the window at the beautiful view of Portland and... Yeah, you're. They're right there. There were maybe a hundred people yep. tops. It's a, just a nice day of collegiality. And at and the writing. end, they had this thing. They have this thing called Two Minutes in the Slammer, where anyone, anyone can sign up and read two minutes worth of whatever they're writing. Then they vote on. They give. Them yeah, prizes. there's a panel of judges. I think it was and Bruce. The two we liked didn't win. Yeah, who was the the panel of judges? Bruce Coffin, Kate Flora, and was it Barbara Ross? I think it was. And the winner won. They had a poster made of all these nice things people said about Tess Garrison. <laughs> yeah. And so the winner got a signed copy of that. Other the, authors said The about person it. who came in second got a, to pick out... A book out of his choice. A book of his yeah. or her choice from the table. And But it was fun because you... Cause Anybody who went to the conference could have joined this, and they get up there, and it sounds intimidating, but it's a very you I, it's it. a very positive crowd. I didn't do it this year. The first year we had it the Friday night. Yes, before, you had it the Friday night, and I did it, and it's it's a little nerve wracking, even if you're a published author, to read your work. And you know, there are people up there reading their work, and Tess Garrettson sitting in the audience. I know, I know. But they they all were good, and it's I think it's an empowering thing, and it's kind of a recognition that everybody who's a writer well, is I'll a also say as a not as someone who's not a writer, I don't have any aspirations to be a writer, but I like to read and I like a lot of authors. It's also a lot of fun, and I feel no no pressure or or I feel nobody's saying, "Oh, what are you doing yeah, here?" Yeah, it's fun. Or they don't say, "What are you doing here?" But at this, and also okay. they don't say, "What are you working on?" Oh, when's your next book coming out? And all that stuff. I don't feel any of that kind of. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? Though I mean, no. I don't. I, I feel right. very free. It feels just like, oh, I'm and here. I'm just an observer, and it's fun. But and, it's so much fun. And I know this is it's a year away. But if you're in the if you'd love like to come to Portland in the spring. Look for it next April, or if you live in, in close and enough, we'll probably come be there, and we'll be there definitely. But if we don't go down but to the docks. I would also at night. recommend. Um, oh, that's from Bob Dylan's song. 
met up down at the docks at night no, with feeling it was best. Oh. No, tangled up and blows. Split up on the docks. Split up on the docks at night. With t- Ooh, maybe that's, maybe he that's one said, of my favorite songs. Maybe Tony said he agreed, that maybe they agreed it was best, but yeah, he didn't with agree. With a feeling it was best. No, I thought he said agreeing split it was best. Split up on the docks at night. Well, Both agreeing we'll it was best. Okay, it's hard with Bob Dylan to understand we'll have to ask what him. he is saying. Bob, can Next you song, please contact he, us? He does listen to our podcast. But I would say, wherever you are, I can't stress enough that if you're interested in writing, if you wanna, if you're an aspiring writer but don't don't know how to get started, or if you're a fan who likes to talk about it and listen, to, if you're find grumpy. find something that's that you can afford that you can go to. They're all over the country. There's huge ones like BoucherCon, which is in a different place in the country every year, and that's probably the biggest mystery writers conference. There's the one we love that we go to every Veterans Weekend, Crime Bake. In, New England in the Boston area, bake. the New England Crime Bake, which registration opens in May, I think, I I and it money. fills up in just a couple well, weeks. Well, if there's a good author, uh, I mean, if there's a really well-known author in this year, even when Lisa Gardner, a, yeah. So we got to do it quick because so, when it was Elizabeth George, it filled yeah, up. Yeah, Becky, very the quickly. first year Becky went, Elizabeth and George, she came and sat next to me. That's right. We have a photo. We can that that is on our yes, it is website. It's on our website. And she she was drawn to me. We're she not, was we're drawn. We're not real. Felt, we're BFFs. But now. I kind of thought you were just going that year because of Elizabeth George, but then you went last year, too. No, I had yeah, fun. Yeah. I liked it. We have fun. And it's just fun to I hang out like with writers. I just like out and drinking and There are people, too. So, so I guess our recommendation this week is to, if you're interested at all, especially, especially, I can't stress this enough, if you are an aspiring yes. writer and wanna and wanna either somehow get motivated or find a place to get advice or um, some t- a lot of them have uh, critiques which I know sounds scary, um, but you have to you have do to scary do things if you want to. I be mean, a writer. I'm, I'm not a writer, but, but I'm an artist, and I would say I I don't lo- always love hearing criticism. But being having somebody critique your work, not shit all over it, That's, but it actually, gets That's actually you get read it and and look at it, or as an artist, they would be looking at it, tell you what they think is good about it, and but tell you what they think you need to work on. Not necessarily bad, but you need that. You need someone objective. And even if you don't agree with all of it, it makes you think about your work and, and that I, helps you improve. And when I first was trying to figure out a way to get started on my first mystery novel, after decades of saying I want to be a mystery writer, I went to my first crime bake. Harlan Coben was the guest Ooh. speaker. I think it was in 2007. And it was just very cool and empowering to be around all those people. And I said, by this time next year, I'm going to have a manuscript I can pitch to an agent. Being around people who are, are interested in the same creative endeavor that you are makes you feel makes you feel like you can do it, I think. But it yes. also encourages you. It reminds me of when I was either when I was in art school or even just being with a group of artists or going to a show with a bunch of artists of an artist that you admire. I mean, it, it really makes you want to create stuff and it also helps you understand what you're doing in your process you know writing you know like other kinds of art everybody kind of has their own process and way of doing it and i think writers panic a lot about whether they're doing it right or what to do or how to do it i know i was stalled for a lot of years because i thought i had to have the whole book figured out and have an outline i went now you find out you're a pantser i'm a pantser because there's, I won't go into the whole thing, I get tired of hearing it, there's the seat of the pantsers, and there's the outliners, and blah, blah, blah. But you you get, 
just talking to other people about how they do it and you think, oh, you know, I'm not so alone in this or I'm not so weird or so after all. And also, from a practical standpoint, anybody who's wondering how to get a book published or how to find an agent, you get a lot of advice. On that one panel, they were talking about query letters, which are important. But somebody who's in the industry said that 90% of the authors she signs Meg Rooley. Come from other authors. Yes. Now, that's not saying that you have to, but it it doesn't hurt to network. No. And meet authors. And I'm not saying try to foist your work on them, but if you meet somebody like you met at Crime Break, Brenda, and you, and Brenda Buchanan, and you guys shared work and read each other's work and stuff. We did. And, and that, I remember saying to her, she asked me if I'd read her manuscript, which became Quick Pivot, her first book in the Joe uh, Gale. Joe Gale series. And she said, and I'll read yours. And I said, oh, I'm done with having people read mine, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, I she convinced me because she's a very nice person but also persuasive. And she gave me a lot of good advice, and I realized the book wasn't done. And, and, cold, and, hard she, news. and you, neither of you recommended each other to a publisher. But even to just the, that. To the best of my knowledge, no author I've ever been friends with has recommended me <laughs> to an agent or publisher. But, but you, you never know. But, uh, but that's not the only reason you network either. You, it's... Just really nice to hang around with people. They're who very supportive the of each other. Mainly as, as a very people are not they're not competitive with each no. other. They're not mean or na- nasty to each other Maine, behind their back. Maine they has a lot of supportive. writers. I think somebody said that it, per capita probably has more writers than any other state, and that's probably true. And lawyers, and lawyers who are writers. Yes, and people have said on many occasions, and I'm sure I've said this on our podcast, that Maine's mystery writing community is a, just a very friendly, generous, yeah, helpful there's community. There's a lot of them. And also, I, I've said this before, that nobody's success diminishes anyone else. No. It just helps make us all successful because mystery readers, readers in general, but mystery readers, they're not only going to read one person's no, books. No, you can't. Unless you read like one book every two years or And something. I will say, uh, every time I've been at one of these things where there's Noir at the Bar, which was episode yeah. 19, and, and we probably said a lot of the same things, you always hear people plug in other people's books. Yeah. And talking about other people in a positive way, and it's great. Yeah. So, anyways, I think we've done that. No, we should. We have drawn I up. noticed that on the microwave. Look, did you notice the microwave? Yeah, somebody left their fucking time. <laughs> well, how do people do that? Uh, why do people do that? I don't know. It irks me. I noticed it. It irks it, me it incredibly. Me it does. Anyway. Anyway, rate and review us. Yes. We, we have. We know you're out there. Rate and review us, uh, and and hey, talk to us. Also, talk to us. Oh yeah, you can you we can email to, us. We love. We get so excited when we hear from we people. Do. Oh God, we do. If we get a message, we have to text each other. Did you say we got a message? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you can email us at crimeandstuff at gmail dot com. Yes. There's a contact form. Yes, I, Uncle Jimmy. Yes. yes. I think there's a contact form on our website. I know I always say that, and I forget to check if it's still working. If there isn't, but that's crimeandstuffonline dot com. If there isn't one. I'll just give you my Go on our Facebook page and send us a message or tweet at us and tell us it isn't there. Also, send us questions for Ask a Lawyer. We do plan to have Matt back. It's not that we don't have questions. He's busy right now. He's busy, and you and I, the three of us have schedules that are hard to match. Right now, they're getting bad. Uh, Hopefully, we'll straighten things out. But yes, we do like to have questions because it's hard for us to always think up. We do have questions for Matt, but we'd like to hear from you guys. And they don't have to be 
esoteric, you know. We also wouldn't mind if you if you have any crime that you think that we would we would be interested in, you can let us know. Yeah, we'd love we love to We always love to get ideas. Yes, we do. We have ideas of our own, but sometimes it's nice to think of something that somebody else finds interesting that we don't know anything about. I mean, you never know. Yeah. So yeah. So I I think that's that's probably and we wanna thank again Think Tank co working, which we haven't thanked in a while. You can probably tell we were here tonight by the trucks roaring by within inches of us on because Interstate 295. And poor Daisy is upset she can't be in the podcast I know, tonight. she can't and be Kabibi, in it. Kabibi's and also we'd like to thank Soundjay for our sounds. <laughs> yeah, for our, for our for our the free sounds. Yeah, free sounds, Soundjay. And we, if you, if you want to do... I Matt, even though he's not here. I miss him. Matt Nichols. Yes, we miss lawyer. Matt. I miss him. And if you want to do... <laughs> If you want to do a podcast, I may end up cutting this out. If you want to do a podcast yourself or just find out more about podcasting, we have a great hosting format, Blueberry, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Yes, Blueberry without the E. And you can click on, on our website, you can click on to go through to go to Blueberry and find out. We wouldn't be able to get this podcast out there if it hadn't been for Blueberry. No, no. And And for Mo being smart. It costs us a small monthly fee. But we were able to do the hosting from our WordPress website, mm-hmm. and and it has cool stats. We love our stats. We look at our. We love to look and see what states and, and what countries and what countries. It's amazing. But we can break down each episode and see how many people. So you people from New Hampshire who say you've listened to the Lego. Yeah, Kenny we know you McKinney, haven't. We know you haven't. But you know what? Thank you. I want to thank California and Texas because I expect Maine to be up there. Yes, but California Can't, and Texas it consistently. I mean, I know they're big states but consistently still. california and texas are our biggest listeners lately are, pennsylvania has been pennsylvania up is up there and thank you we so blueberry's pretty cool we love to check and see how many downloads we've oh had oh my god but my I'm favorite obsessive. thing is my favorite thing is checking the geography and after the and, u.s and hannah likes to check and we also want to thank australia australia because after you. the u.s the, our Britain. biggest country is Australia. And sometimes Great Britain's up there. Because I think they, when they first get on, they think, oh, they'll be speaking English, so we'll understand what they're saying, and then they probably listen and say, But I think that they, shit? like, cry. Yes. And then we have, like, Finland and North. I know. I know. It's, no, we have Ecuador. We have we have Ecuador. Sometimes you wonder if they just Hi. listen by accident. Hola. <laughs> that's, uh, I could, it could be an American living there. That's true. So we want to thank all our listeners for listening. We really do. And, and we also want to say... You don't know how appreciative we if are you that do, anyone really likes listening If you do want to, to check out Blueberry for your own podcast, and obviously anyone can podcast, there's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a link on our site. Please use our site to go through to check out Blueberry. Yeah. And, uh, and we appreciate out. it. It helps us out. Just like giving, like grabbing and rating on iTunes really and, helps, helps us. Yes. Get more people interested. And, and I know it's not your problem. We're not your problem. <laughs> but we could be. <laughs> no, we're kidding. I think it's, it's getting late. We, we, we ate be. this whole thing of brownies that you made for your daughter's Daisy Girls. Daisy um, Girl Scouts. See, they What's used the to matter with those kids. They that, used to have brownies as the youngest, but now they have daisies. Are daisies younger than brownies? Yes, five and six. Yeah, for kindergarten, first grade. Brownies used to be second grade. Yeah, you know what? My biggest memory of brownies as a child is when we lived in Dayton, Ohio. Mom and, was a brownie, and leader. mom was our leader, and you had to bring a nickel dues every week. Yeah, and National Cash Register, which was one of the big employers. 
in the um in the area yeah. was on strike. And so all the girls who had dads who worked at National Cash Register didn't have to bring in their dues. Aww. Our little brownie troop political statement. That's cute. Well, yeah. we, two dollars, our dues are two dollars. I remember when I was in brownies and I, I, was, I hated the, those units. I, I love the fact that they wear little vests juniors. now. I wish we had just and worn And they make them vests. optional. But, you know, we had to wear those ugly brown dresses and I the beanies. I know they were dresses. Uh, they, they were, were ugly. Outfit. Yeah. But, uh, but I think when I was in, um, by the time I was in juniors, whoever the, le- the leader was, all we had to do was get a... We, we got, rarely, we just, we just wore our sash, sash over yeah. our clothes. And the great thing, what I loved, what I loved in um, Girl Scouts, and this was again in Ohio, was the camping. They had some beautiful yes. Girl Scout campgrounds. There, there are nice campgrounds in Maine. Well, when we moved to Augusta, when I was 12... There was no Girl Scout troop. I ended my Girl Scout career I st- in Ohio. It, it, but they, they m- started out because started they had brownies. Yeah. And, and it was a huge troop. And also and it would have gotten in the way the of my school. dope smoking. <laughs> we used to, I'm just joking. We used to meet Kidding, at, Mom. We, she doesn't listen. No. We used to meet at, in the gym at school after school. And, and I swear Mary's. there were, yeah, and I swear there were about 30 or 40 girls wow. in that. Now, the one I'm in, there were no open daisy troops. And so these three women, Hannah went to a birthday party today, too, not to sound too much like a friggin' mom. You do. I know it reminds me of that song by. There's a song by Michelle Shocked called Anchorage. I just posted on my Facebook because I was listening it to the other day, where it's a it's a letter from her friend to her. She's talking about their past, how they used to have fun and rock out, and uh, you know. And then she says, I. I feel like a house, or I sound like a housewife, and then she says, I feel like a housewife, and that's how that uh-huh. But anyway, so uh, I was talking to another mother, mom, at this birthday party, I'm a mom. and she started her own Daisy Troop because there were none, and then it filled right up. And the one that I joined are these three mothers who had, each had a daughter in kindergarten in the same school, and there were no Daisy Troops open, so they started one. And they limited it to 12 girls, and there's only seven now. The thing I like about it is I like, I know I'm going to annoy some people because I'm a it, I'm They're a not listening anymore. They're, they've turned us I'm off. I'm a really, I'm a but I like activities to, that's all girls. I want, there's nothing wrong with that, and I think that. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with activities that are all no, boys. No, there aren't. Too. There aren't. I like that having gender-specific things to do because I think it it strengthens your. My only issue with gender specificity is, that is they when both have it. Right? No. no. Okay. Never mind. My only issue with gender specificity is is when the activities are gender specific, not the people taking part in them. For instance, we're not going to do Pinewood Derby because that's for boys. Oh, yeah, that's silly. Or we're not going to play with Legos because that's for boys. Or we're only going to play with pink and pastel-colored yeah. Legos. That bullshit, I won't go into my whole how girls are forced to be pink little princesses yeah. from the time they're in the womb or any of that bullshit. But I, <laughs> I think it's good for people to hang with their own gender and and I don't see anything wrong with like single-sex education. I said that about the youth center earlier that they used to be split. Uh, there used to be a boys and there was a girls and they should have kept it that way because part of the problem when I was there is I noticed that they trying to flirt with each other and crap because they had classes together 
that they were not having the other focusing. gender there always changes the dynamic. I know it. there's this there's this there's a stereotype of cattiness and stuff which I've never I've never experienced I've never that. experienced that. I have found I've worked with many people, I've had many different jobs in my life, but I found that when women are working together, even when they don't agree with each other, they try to work together. My work experience and and I know this sounds generalizing, but it's just my work experience, especially my recent my most recent newspaper work experience is that the women are willing to do the shit work. They're willing to do whatever needs to be done to get the job done. And there's very little ego involved where I find men want to do the things that are going to make them look good or they're going to show good. They're going to get a little recognition for a lot of shit work or small detail work goes by the wayside. I think there are a lot of men who aren't used to doing the small detail work that needs to be done to make sure things work well because in their home life, I think a lot of men had moms and wives and other people take who take who take mm-hmm. uh, take that upon themselves, whether it's the woman's choice or not. And I found that women are, the women I worked with were willing to do all the things that needed to be done and were much more detail-oriented and much more wanted to take care of all the details of a job and were much less willing, because this has always been one of my pet peeves, to to either phone it in or take shortcuts that maybe made things kind of look okay on the That's surface, but must... <laughs> But I'm not talking about her. But about Pam Ames, this was different. She worked really hard to cover all that yeah. shit up. I don't know how we got into all this. Maybe we'll end up just because we were talking up. about brownies. But in any case, I think that's probably it for this week. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. If anyone hasn't watched Shit Town, they really have to. Yes. And we're not making fun of Uncle Jimmy. People. I like Uncle Jimmy. I liked him in the background. He was aff- offering yes. affirmations. Yes. And, and, I like that a lot. Yes. God, yeah. So that was this week. We're not sure what we'll be doing next week, as always. And I guess that's it. Good night. Until next week. Good night. I'm sure this is one of the reasons I'm no longer employed at my old job. But I used to say because there were a lot of. And I used to say, still leaked out how great it was to because I was in an industry, journalism, that right up until the end. Well, I find <laughs> that, that I found out. I find that. They-